Today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16. The word of God speaks to us. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if her wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Allie. That's pretty self-explanatory. So... Hey, it's good to be with you guys. I love you. Um, one of our distinctives as a church is that we are Bible honoring. And that means a lot, but one of the artifacts of that is that it's our regular practice that we preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse. And so if you're new, um, and this is maybe your first time on a Sunday or one of your first times on a Sunday, we have been verse by verse preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. And this, I believe, if my count is right, is our 22nd sermon in the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Um, And so this just happens to be the next verse. And this isn't the first verse that we've come across as we've gone through the book of 1 Corinthians that seems strange to us upon first reading and seems difficult to understand. And yet God has been really gracious and faithful to us to bring about understanding as we've gone through this book, and, and help our hearts realize the, the beauty of God's truth and what it means for our life. And this, this is a uniquely hard passage to understand. One of the commentaries in paragraph one, page one, described it as a fiendishly difficult passage, which I found unhelpful as I was beginning to study it. I told my wife, Anna, hey, this is like one of the hardest passages to preach in the Bible. And Anna, who loves me in so many ways and, and, and primarily loves me by being honest with me, said, David, you say that all the time. Said, you always say this is one of the hardest passages to preach. And I'm like, well, okay, that's true. <laughs> and yet, like, maybe just maybe in the last couple of years, we've preached through the book of Job and Jude. And so maybe I have a few reasons to say, hey, these are, these are challenging passages. Yeah, I'm encouraged this morning, if you've been a part of Frontline for a while, that although we come together by the grace of God 
as the people of God, under the word of God, although sometimes in this moment when it seems confusing, hey, what does that mean for us? The spirit of God is gracious to help us understand his word. And so that's why always in this moment we do what? I ask you to pray for me. I pray for you, and God helps us together. So let's do that once again in this moment. So Father, we ask you for understanding. Help us understand this passage. Help us understand what it means for us today. Help us understand what Paul was saying to the Corinthians those 2,000 years ago. We just remind our own hearts that your word is perfect to train us in righteousness, to encourage us, to correct us, to equip us for the good works that you've called us to. And so we pray, Spirit of God, that you would open our ears, open our hearts to receive the truth of your word. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help me serve my friends. We pray this, Jesus, in your name and God's people said, amen. We all face a danger anytime we, we open the Bible. And that danger is a temptation to kind of divide God's word into two categories. And those categories would, would look like this. There's, there's sections of the Bible that are timeless. They're evergreen, right? And they still apply to us today, regardless of when they were written and the cultural context in which they were written. So things like loving your neighbor as yourself or forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us, confessing our sins. We can look at charges like that or passages in the Bible and think, well, that's relevant to us all the time. And then we can categorize a whole nother portion of scripture as to cultural sections, stuff that no longer applies to us today and therefore we assume is completely irrelevant to our lives. But here's the problem with that approach, that the Bible is both timeless and cultural. They're not mutually exclusive. They go together. The Bible is timeless. It's God-breathed, authoritative. It's useful for teaching. Even the parts about head coverings for all times, all cultures, all places. And yet the whole Bible is, is, is experienced culturally in a sense that every single part of the Bible, Scripture, it's anchored in a particular time, in a particular place, to a particular people. So all Scripture is, is timeless and cultural. How would we even decide what goes into what category and the other? Who gets to make those calls? It's impossible. So if that's true, what do we do with a text like this? When it comes to a passage like 1 Corinthians 11, we have to do the work of asking important questions like what was happening in Corinth at the time that Paul wrote this letter to them? What did the text mean to the original audience when they received it? What was the heart of Paul's message? Pastor Steve, when he preached yesterday, I love how he put it. What's the thing behind the thing? We've spent the last several weeks talking about idol meat. That's not really a cultural problem in Edmond, whether or not we eat idol meat or not. But we, we got to the heart of the thing behind the thing. Sacrificial love in the church. And so we have to do the hard work of asking, what does it mean for our church and our lives today when we come across a passage like this? Kathy Keller 
author of Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, a great book. She, she helps us understand my point. She, she puts it concisely and powerfully this way. She says, we must find a way to obey faithfully whatever we discover to be God's revealed will, even if our cultural situation has changed since it was first revealed. So, for example, before we start, in the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to say that we ought to greet one another with a holy kiss. So does that mean, does that mean that our greeters have failed up until now because when you come to this church, they don't grab you by the face and lay a wet one on each side of your cheek? No, if they were to do that, that would be inappropriate in our culture. I'm not going to that church. Right? But does that mean then that we just fully reject the, the heart of that message there and say, no, 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 that, that's irrelevant? To, no, it is irrelevant because what's the thing behind the thing? As Pastor Steve said, what's the heart of, of Paul's instruction there? It's that we need to love each other and interact and welcome each other with the hospitality of family. So we don't greet one another with a holy kiss, although that was culturally acceptable 2,000 years ago in Corinth. What we do in Edmond in 2023 is we give a side hug or we give them a cup of coffee, right? So with that being said, as we begin, we need to get our bearings in the book of 1 Corinthians because what's happening here is a transition. Paul's changing topics. The first two verses that Ali read represent a shift in the subject of this letter, and there's a hinge that we're turning on. See, 1 Corinthians can be viewed really in five parts, and what we're doing right now is we're entering into this fourth part. The first part, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 4, it was about divisions and leadership in the church. And then chapters 5 through 7, Paul addressed sexual brokenness and singleness, marriage and, and litigation, places where this division was playing out. And then, as I mentioned already, the last few chapters we've been in, 8, 9, and 10, it's been about struggles with idolatry and sacrificial love. And then here we are, we're entering this fourth section, and Paul begins to address corporate worship. Hey, what should it look like when the church gathers together for worship? And as Paul transitions his charge to the church, moving on from one subject to another, he's going to give one final word on the matter of sacrificial love. And Paul's going to say this, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, imitator there simply means follower. The NIV translates that verse, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now, Paul is not being prideful here. He's just being practical and pastoral. We often don't follow advice as people. We, uh, we follow people as people. We follow examples. So Paul's advice is really straightforward. Hey, follow my example as I follow Jesus. Something that every Christian leader ought to be able to say. It struck me this week that I went, I literally went through just my, my library in my study here at the church, not at home, but just the books that I have here at the church. And I have 27 books that have the word leader or leadership just in the title. Now, that, that isn't just the books I have on the topics of leadership. I just mean literally in the title, no less than 27 books that are about leadership and leading. Our culture and our faith, it's really concerned with leadership, and that's good. We need good and godly leaders. Yet what this verse reminds me is we do well to focus on how we're following instead of being primarily concerned with how we're leading. 
We're all given leadership to steward by the grace of God, yes, but, but we need to ask ourselves the question, are we following Christ? Are we following others who live like Christ? Now, with that said, the subject now changes here in verse 2. Paul writes, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. Now, being that Paul's about to address some really serious problems within the church in Corinth, it's a surprise that he writes commending or praising or complimenting this church in Corinth. It's like, is he being sarcastic? Is he, is he patronizing them? Is he just being really nice? Is, he, is this a strategy? Is Paul softening them up before he's going to deliver some hard truth? No, I think Paul's just being genuine here. See, this church has written Paul asking honest questions about how to go about gathering for worship. And Paul's encouraged that they're remembering and maintaining the traditions that he passed on to them when he spent a year and a half with them planting this church. See, this church isn't dismissing or belittling the importance of gathering together as a church. People that were part of the church in Corinth weren't staying home in their pajamas and and doing church, quote, as a family online. They're actually getting together as the body of Christ to worship the people of God under the word of God with the presence of God in their midst. They valued getting together to worship. And Paul is commending them because of this. They care about the right things. Yes, but man, are they going about it the wrong way? Which is what we're going to look at in the coming weeks. They have right priorities gathering for worship, but they have the wrong practice. In their gatherings, there's disorder and dishonor. So that's the problem that Paul's going to address, begin to address in this passage. It's the first thing we need to see, disorder in the church in Corinth. Disorder in the church in Corinth. Let me read us again, uh, read to us again, picking up in verse four. Listen. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovers, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers, dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. This is a little bit how we experience 1 Corinthians. It's like, you ever like in the room with maybe somebody in your family? This happens with me and Anna a lot where she's on the phone talking to somebody. I can only hear one side of the conversation, but I can discern the conversation by just hearing Anna, not the person on the other line, right? That's essentially what reading 1 Corinthians is like. We aren't hearing what the church in Corinth wrote to Paul to ask. We are hearing his answers. But as a result, we can discern what the Corinthians have written to ask Paul as we hear what Paul says to them. And today, from this moment forward, we need to keep before us the specific issue Paul is addressing with the church in Corinth that they've asked him about. And the question Paul addresses from here on out in the text today is, hey, When we pray and prophesy, as we gather together for worship as a church, how should we use head coverings? And there's no way to understand today's text without understanding the historical and cultural contexts of head coverings in ancient Corinth. So let's take it one statement at a time, and Paul begins addressing the men in the church. He said, every man, verse 4, every man who prophesies or prays with his head covered dishonors his head. Well, what on earth does that mean? 
Well, men in ancient Rome, as they led and participated in, in worship in pagan temples, they're going to the temple of Aphrodite or the temple of Poseidon, uh, Poseidon during prayer and, and sacrifice to pagan gods. They would often pull the loose folds of their toga up over their heads as an act of worship or reverence. That was a regular practice in pagan worship and pagan temples. And not only was it a regular practice within those pagan temples, but get this, it was only done by Roman men or men in, in Roman culture with high social status. People considered the elites. So a man covering his head, it wasn't merely an act of pagan worship. It was also kind of a prideful display of his social status. So this happened every day in the city of Corinth in pagan temples. And so here's a historic example of what this might look like. This was a a statue of Caesar Augustus. And in the statue, he's being represented as uh, Pontifex Maximus, the, the very high priest of the Roman religion. And as you can see, he's got a part of his garment, his toga pulled up over his head. This is what men in the church of Corinth were likely doing. And so for a Christian man to cover his head during a a church gathering as he prayed or prophesied in in the, the worship gathering of the church of Christ, that would be inappropriate for that very reason. You're bringing a man, what you're doing in that sense is you're bringing a pagan practice of worship into the church of God And that's wrong on one hand. And yet, on another level, you're actually doing it to highlight your elite social status, drawing attention to yourself, not drawing attention to Jesus, and setting yourself apart as better than other men or other people in the church. So for a man in Corinth to cover his head while he prayed or prophesied meant something very specific in that context. And the action dishonored Jesus, and it dishonored others in the church as well. So let's pause here and and then specifically ask, hey, in light of this, is it wrong for men to wear hats in our congregation? Well, I don't think so. No, it's fine because when you put your hat on this morning, that was just a style choice. You weren't actually nodding to worship of a pagan god. If you were, then don't wear a hat, right? Or if you put your hat on this morning and said, man, this is going to set me apart as elite and socially above, you know, Chad down the row, then you ought not probably wear a hat. But if you just wore a hat because you didn't want to brush your hair, you were, you're cool, right? That is, that is fine. Or if it's just a cool hat, that, that is totally okay, right? The action means something totally different in our context, so we need to look past the action and get to the heart of the issue. And Paul begins and highlights the disorder of the church in Corinth by shining a light first on men doing something they shouldn't be doing, but then Paul's going to go on to bring up the fact that some of the women of the church aren't doing something they should be doing. Verse 5, but every wife every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since, it's a dis- since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So what's going on here? In ancient Corinth and all across the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, a woman covering her head was an indication, a way that she would publicly display the fact that she was married. 
You understand? Having a, a head covered, a woman having her head covered was displaying that she was married. And this head covering wasn't like a burqa or even a jihab that you might see a Muslim woman wear. This was probably a thin headscarf or a head covering that communicated in ancient culture a woman's modesty and her fidelity to her husband. Again, you can see an example in ancient art. This is a woman named Vibia Sabina. She was a uh, Roman empress, wife of Emperor Hadrian. She lived the same century that this letter was written. And you can see this art that depicts her. And, and very similarly, she's got a headscarf that's covering a portion of her head, signifying in this statue that she was married, the wife of Emperor Hadrian. So wearing a, a head covering like this was one way a wife would have honored her husband in public. And vice versa, a wife who refused, a wife who refused to wear a head covering in public would disgrace her husband because at best it communicated singleness and it could have even communicated sexual availability. It was something that temple prostitutes did. All women wore their hair up. Married women wore a head covering. And yet woman, women who publicly wore their hair down uncovered, it commuted something of sexual availability. And it was the practice of temple prostitutes in the city of Corinth. Yet married women in the church of Corinth are taking their head coverings off before they get up to pray and prophesy publicly in the church. Imagine this scenario at Frontline Edmund. A husband and wife pull up to church. You get in the car, you, you drive to church, you pull up in your parking space, and, and if your family's like mine, I'm out of the car one minute before Anna, and I start to head somewhere, and I realize she's not out, and so I have to turn around and wait for her to do those final important things that you ladies do in the car. You know, you like get your purse, whatever, you check your makeup. But imagine, husband, you're watching your wife before you guys head into church, and you see her grab her purse and, and, and check the mirror one more time, and then you see her take off her wedding ring and stick it in the console, and you're thinking, wait a minute, what's happening. And yet something like that is happening in the church in Corinth. Or perhaps even a better parallel would be imagine a culture in our church where before a woman got up to take the stage to lead us in worship or lead us in prayer, that she would take her wedding ring off before she publicly led. That would be bizarre and strange and dishonor her husband. But that's the cultural equivalent to what's happening consistently in this church in Corinth. Taking off that wedding ring would be displaying that she's single. And so Paul's point is this behavior is shameful for a married woman. It's bringing shame on her husband. So what's his point about bringing up shaven heads and short hair as he goes on in this verse? Well, Paul says that a wife uncovering her head is the equivalent of cutting off her short hair, shaving her head in shame. Historian Kyle Harper, who we've quoted before, he, he brings some understanding in his book, From Sin to Shame. He writes, Roman women in late antiquity were to be marked by above all else, uh, and here's the word, it's Latin, pudicistia, I believe I'm saying it right. And for a mature woman to leave her hair uncovered was a chief sign of sexual immodesty. And according to Roman law, the penalty for a wife committing adultery was to cut off her hair. 
And this would publicly shame her because only men had short hair in that culture at that time. So shaven heads or short hair for a woman in that context was a sign of shame. And is that the case for us today? No, of course not, right? Sinead O'Connor looked perfectly beautiful in the Nothing Compares to You video, right? If you're under 40, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Go look it up. That's your homework, right? But the cultural reality 2,000 years ago was that short hair on a woman was a sign of shame, just like long hair on a man was a sign of shame, which we'll get to. And long hair was considered a woman's glory. So Paul is intentionally being provocative to this church. He's saying, hey, if, if you wear your hair uncovered as a married woman, showing signs that you're sexually promiscuous, you might as well shave it off or cut it short, the sentence of being an adulterous woman. Paul goes on to write in verse 13, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So just remember again that, that Paul isn't writing a broad letter to the entire city of Corinth. Paul is writing directly to the church in the city of Corinth that he's planted. And as we've already studied in this letter and seen, the Corinthian church, they were being influenced by the culture of the city of Corinth, and that culture was seeping its way into the church. Christian worship was looking like pagan idolatry, and the old idolatrous habits of these new Christians was returning and taking hold. And, and this is what's true about pagan idolatry. It always blurs the lines between gender. Pagan idolatry, which Paul says in chapter 10, if you remember, is actually empowered by darkness and the demonic. It always pushes women away from God-given femininity towards embracing a personal masculinity. And the reverse is also true. Pagan idolatrous practices always push men away from embracing God-given masculinity towards a personal femininity. And the result was a genderless androgyny that seeks to blur and hide God's given gifts of women to be redeemed in their femininity and men to be redeemed in their masculinity. And this is the course that this church is beginning to drift down and Paul in love is pointing it out. Men were covering their heads like women, influenced like, uh, by pagan worship. Women were uncovering their heads like men, at a minimum communi- communicating something that was contrary to God's good design for marriage and sexual purity. And our historical moment isn't the first to deal with issues of confusion around gender expression and broken sexuality. And as we study these verses today, for all their challenges and the ways that they seem strange to us, at the heart, they're driving this message home. Christian men and Christian women must embrace and express their God-given gender, their biological sex. Our redeemed masculinity and our redeemed femininity in Christ should not be swept under the rug, but actually put on display in the church for the glory of God. Plainly but importantly, this means Christian men we must look and behave like Christian men for the glory of God. And Christian women must look and behave like Christian women for the glory of God. And this will differ from culture to culture. And so we have to get to the heart of the matter. 
So as Paul writes in, in verse 13, judge for yourself, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Well, we've got to translate that to our context. Is it proper for a wife to intentionally communicate that she's single when she engages and serves in the church? Well, no. In verse 14, Paul asks, does, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for her hair is given for a covering? Well, the answer to that for us is no, Apostle Paul. In Edmond, Oklahoma, in 2023, it's not naturally self-evident that it's disgraceful for men to have long hair. But in Corinth 2,000 years ago, the only reason a man would have long hair is if he was intentionally trying to appear as a woman. And so can Ryan Geekus lead worship with his long hair? I know that's the question you're all asking. <laughs> yes, Ryan can lead worship with his long hair. You guys can text him right now and just give him the good news. Can, can Ryan Geekus lead worship in an evening gown? No, he cannot, right? <laughs> that would not be appropriate, and that would be dishonoring to all of us, right? If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul's saying, hey, if you want to argue about this, we don't have this practice in any of the churches. This is how it is in God's church. The fact that this isn't an issue or anything like it is brought up in any other letter in the New Testament to any other church just reminds us something about the church in Corinth. Already in this letter, we've seen that this church struggles with sexual sin. We know they have a low view of their bodies. We know that they idolize and worship their own freedom, and that's created this dangerous cocktail. And Paul wants to help this unhealthy church flourish in all areas, including how they view gender and marriage and how to gather as God's people and worship in a healthy way. So he illustrates that our gender differences are rooted in the goodness of God, both in the very triune nature of God and in the perfection of creation before the fall. Which brings us to the second thing we need to see, order in the goodness of God. In light of the disorder in the church in Corinth, Paul's going to point to order in the goodness of God. Look back to verse 3 with me. Paul writes, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, Paul here lays out three distinct but overlapping relationships. And it's important to note that Paul is not arguing for like a chain of importance or command along the lines of God, Christ, man, women, and women are at the bottom or the caboose of this train. That's not the case at all. Rather, Paul is highlighting something powerful and profound about the relationship between the Heavenly Father and the Son of God to illustrate the relationship between men and women in the context of men marriage. So notice the order of these three parts. You have Christ and humanity and husband and wife and God the Father to God the Son. Pastor Andrew Wilson helpfully says this about the concept of head to understand what Paul's saying here. He says, the heart of Paul's picture is not command and control like a Western organization. It is honor and shame like an Eastern family. The head is not primarily the one in charge or even the origin or source of everything else, though he usually is both. The head is prominent, the one whose reputation is either honored or shamed by the actions of others. 
And so when we think head, we primarily think one in charge. And what Paul is saying is not less than that. One with authority is the word to use. It's more than that. It has to do with honor and shame. And so Paul's inviting us to think about the Trinity, the Father and the Son. God the Father and God the Son, they're not interchangeable. The distinction between the Heavenly Father and the Son aren't fluid. The Father cannot one day decide to be the Son or vice versa. The Son one day cannot decide to be the Father. But the Father and the Son are co-equal in their dignity, their value, their worth, as the Nicene Creed says, both very God of very God. And the Father and the Son are both equal, yet they play distinct and different roles within the Godhead. The Father gives and sends the Son. And beginning in the incarnation, the Son chose to submit to the will of his Father and chose to do nothing on his own authority. Jesus says this again and again in the Gospels. And this truth doesn't minimize Jesus' value or dignity or his, his Godhood. Nobody sees Jesus as less important or less God because he follows the Heavenly Father. And what does this mean for us? Well, Paul's saying husbands and wives have unique roles as well, and, and husbands and wives aren't interchangeable. We're not the same, but we're distinct from one another in glorious ways, in ways that complement one another. Just as Jesus followed his heavenly Father, this wasn't an attack or a diminishment of his value, his dignity in any way. So as wives follow their husbands, it's not an attack or to diminish their value or dignity in any way. And as Christians' wives are called to, to follow their husband and their husbands as their head, Christian men are also called to follow Jesus as their head head. And this is way different, we recognize, than culture's message, but I also would submit to you that culture is a dumpster fire. So if we're looking to the world to figure out how to live, it's self-evident that that's not working out. Verse 7, Paul says, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. See, what Paul is saying here is that he's going back to illustrate God's good order within creation. He's going back to the very beginning. He's pointing us to what's recorded in Scripture in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. And keep in mind, as Paul's referencing men and women here, it's in the context of speaking to the relationship of husbands and wives. And he's going back to the very first husband and wife, Adam and Eve. And he's holding up God's order in the midst of the disorder in this church. The difference between men and women are not a result of social constructs or social or cultural customs. They're found in God's good design as he created first man and then from man, woman. And these differences should be embraced and expressed in the appearance and the roles of men and women in marriage and in the church. So if men come to church looking like a woman, in this case with heads covered, or women coming to church acting like men, in this case heads uncovered, it dishonors God's order in marriage. It dishonors God's order in creation. And what Paul is saying in this passage is that the men in the church in Corinth are shaming Christ by their actions, and the women in the church of Corinth are shaming their husbands by their actions. He's saying, in the beginning, it was not supposed to be this way. They both should be honoring and following. 
And although some of the specifics of what Paul is saying in these verses aren't directly applicable to our situation today, the heart of Paul's instructions are 100% relevant. Paul's appeal to the order of creation means that the, the heart of his message transcends our cultural circumstances. And the headship of a husband in marriage is God's good design throughout all generations, regardless of the time in history we find ourselves and the place in history we find ourselves. And this headship, according to Ephesians chapter 5, is a Christ-like leadership. So I'm always looking at my own life. And, and in fact, this week I had to come to Anna and ask for her forgiveness because I got it twisted a day. And I was grumpy and rude and short. And it's because the posture of my heart was that, hey, my family's here to serve all my needs. And I had to come back to her and say, hey, would you forgive me for how I spoke to, to you last night or, or my attitude that I, I fell short. I sinned against you. I sinned against Jesus. Because according to, to Paul in Ephesians 5, how I need to love and be the head of my household is to be like Jesus. So as Anna experiences me, it needs to be like an arrow pointing her to the beauty and the glory and the wonder of who Jesus is. That means that I ought to be incarnational in my leadership, that I'm actually present with with her. If Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, that my, my husbanding and the leadership of my household needs to be one of presence and pursuit and knowing and nearness. And as Peter tells us, understanding our wives because Jesus understands us. That my leadership needs to be sacrificial, not coming to be served, but to lay down my life and serve because Jesus's leadership took him to the cross where he laid his life down. That my leadership as a husband needs to be resurrected, empowered by the Holy Spirit, alive and working for the good of our bride. Jesus is the standard for the headship of a husband. That's what Paul is saying, yet this is what Paul is not saying. In these verses, Paul is not saying that women are not made in the image of God. He is not saying that men are made in the image of God and women are not. He is not saying that men are superior and women are inferior. In Genesis chapter 127, explicitly, plainly, undeniably, Scripture tells us that God created both men and women in his image. Both uniquely reflect the glory of God. To adapt an illustration I've heard before, in our backyard, we have blackberry uh, vines. We have a blackberry bush. I, I, I love these blackberry vines, this blackberry bush. And it produces, unlike other fruit trees in our yard, it produces every year, it produces done. And we always take that, those blackberries and we make blackberry cobbler. It's my favorite thing to do with those blackberries. The blackberry cobbler is the glory of the blackberry. <laughs> And the blackberry is the glory of the blackberry bush or vine. It would be nonsense to say one is better than the other. They're all connected, and yet they're all unique. And they point to the, the beauty and the wonder and the glory of each other. Men and women both bear the image of God together and reflect God's glory on earth in different and complementary ways. We see at creation that men and women are not interchangeable. So Paul writes, woman is the glory of man. He's using glory in the sense of one who shows the excellencies of. When he writes that men are the glory of God, one who shows the excellencies of. So Paul points, Paul's point speaking to wives here is that, that by their excellencies, by their very being, they can reflect the excellency, their excellency into the life of their husband. Like Eve honored Adam at the beginning. 
She was the crowning jewel of creation, the last thing that made everything as it should be. Before the fall, God said something isn't good, and it was the Eve wasn't around yet. And so she's taken from the side of Adam, not to be his maid or servant, but to be his helper, to be his companion, to to provide strength, a, a word used to describe God himself. I think of Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. It says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. That doesn't mean that she's ornamental. She's there just to look pretty. That's not what a crown does. A crown is far more than that. A crown communicates greatness and royalty. It brings about transformational essence that's at the heart of redeemed femininity. Paul is arguing that from creation, we see the principles that wives and husbands have different roles that transcend culture, time, and place. And it blesses each other and it blesses Christ. Then Paul writes in verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. It just gets easier and easier to understand the deeper we get into these verses, right? Angels here, there's a couple options. Angels literally translates to messenger. And so some theologians and some even elders in this church that are preaching today, they're, they're, they're going to take the view that Paul says when he writes, because of the angels, he's literally talking about messengers, human messengers that would visit the Corinthian church on a Sunday as they gathered because it was the practice in that culture at that time for, for wealthy citizens or well-to-do citizens before they showed up somewhere, they They would send a a servant that worked for them on a head to check it out and report back, right? So it's like, I'm not going to visit that church. I'm going to send somebody that works for me to visit that church and tell me if I should go visit that church. That would be the dynamic, right? And it was a pretty regular practice for, for anything that maybe an ancient wealthy person in ancient Rome would go about. And so Paul's point could be here, hey, wives, act in an honorable way towards your husbands because people sent to check out your gathering are being scandalized by how you're acting. That's one option. The other option refers to messengers not sent by potential church visitors, but, but messengers sent by God himself. When we think of angels, what we think of, unseen heavenly beings observing the church. The key idea of angels watching is an idea that's all throughout the New Testament. And it's in Paul's writings. When Paul writes to Timothy in his letters to Timothy, he he mentions that Timothy's leadership and the way he's going about his life is being done before the witness of God, Jesus Christ, and elect angels. There's three other times that Paul brings up angels in 1 Corinthians, and every time he does, it's obvious that he's not talking about a a messenger from a human person, but he's talking about a heavenly being. And so that's, for what it's worth, my take, that Paul is actually talking about angels from God. And there's a lot that we don't know about angels in Scripture, but there's a lot that we do know. Angels love to worship Job 38 tells us that at the beginning of creation, angels were there as as God was speaking creation into existence and they were worshiping, just cheering God on. Revelation 7 tells us that the angels, they're falling on their face before God, singing out blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And we also know uh, that according to God's words, God directs angels to minister to his church. Psalm 91 says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. 
So Paul's message, I think, is, is profound and weighty. He says, hey, heavenly beings are present with the church in Corinth as you gather to worship. And so church in Corinth, act rightly as you worship because you have company. Paul goes on to write in verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so now, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. As much as woman was made for man and men are now born of women. In marriage, in the church, the family of God, men and women are interdependent. Our differences aren't meant to divide us, but in God's good design, we complement one another for the unity of the church and the glory of God. And so finally, and, and lastly, that brings us to our third point, which is like, hey, what, what do we do with this? What does this mean for us as a church? Well, it's reordered lives in line with God's word. How can we live in line with the heart of this passage in our lives and our worship gatherings 2,000 years after this was written to the church in Corinth. A few things for us to consider. The first is this. The church must be a place where women bring their gifts for the common good. That's the beauty and the power of this passage. And the main point is that women are being said to be praying and prophesying using their gifts in the public gathering in the church. And in no way is Paul shutting that down. He's actually encouraging that. Paul is, is saying, hey, Women and men, pray and prophesy. Use your gifts. Do that even more. Do it just in this context. Men, when you gather to worship God on Sundays, do so distinctly as redeemed men. And women, when you gather to worship God, do so distinctly as redeemed women. And we're going to talk more about prophecy and prayer in the coming chapters, 12, 13, 14. But it's enough to say today that women played a significant role of prayer and prophecy in the ministry and the life of the early church and must play a significant role in prayer and prophecy and ministry in the life of our church. Another thing that we need to consider, the church must be a place where gender is expressed for the glory of God. So we want to be a congregation. Frontline wants to be a church. We must be a church. It's one of our distinctives that we're gender redeeming. And so that means men in Christ, bring all of your redeemed masculinity to bear in the church. Let it be shaped by the word of God and submitted to Jesus in every way. And likewise, women, bring all of your redeemed femininity to bear in the church. Let it be shaped by the word of God and submitted to Jesus in every way. Men and women together, let's celebrate our interdependence and cheer one another on in the church in our gifts. And husbands and wives, may we worship in unity, come honoring one another, loving one another in such a way that when people see our, our relationship, that it would remind them of the very love and honor between Christ and the church. And then lastly, the church must be a place where people struggling with gender issues find truth. This church is a place where everyone is welcome, regardless of where you are in your struggles with gender and sexual temptation. And I know there's people that are part of our church here today, particularly young people that have anxieties and struggles and confusion when it comes to gender. And the message that you need to hear from me representing the leadership of this church is that we are so thankful that you are here. God loves you furiously and deeply. He knows you better than you know yourself. And actually identity and a flourishing life 
And truly being who you were called and made to be is found in him. All of us have disordered desires, each and every one of us. And Jesus welcomes all of us who would receive him, deny ourselves, and give our lives to him, confess to him as Lord and Savior. That is the place truly where we begin to find, to begin to find our identity, truly who we are, because he made us. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much here to cover. And I know I feel like I've just um, been, been standing under a fire hose and it can seem overwhelming, but we pray, Spirit, that you would help us do what we can't do in our own strength, which is just have truth, your truth, planted in our hearts to bear fruit. Make us a church where together as, as men and women we celebrate one another we depend on one another. Help us be a church where those struggling with sexual sin or sexual identity can find truth and know you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. And God's people said, amen.